We're going to begin in 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 8, because in, in many ways, this kind of became a two-part sermon. In verses 9 through 12, Peter is interpreting further the advice that he gives through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his brothers and sisters in Asia Minor. And so, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. In this life, we experience a world that wants to fight us over the matter of our faith. Uh, A world that wants to stamp out the truths of the gospel, that wants to go its own way. This is the same world that Peter's audience in Asia Minor in the first century was encountering. These new Christians were starting to live out their faith, and they were facing opposition as a result. And so Peter writes this letter uh, intending to encourage them how they can walk faithfully with Christ. And so what happens for you when a coworker or a classmate makes fun of your faith? When you see your brothers and sisters slandered in the news or on Facebook or whatever social messaging, social, uh, social networking platform you prefer, when you hear of new converts to the faith disowned or distanced by their family, or even when you have friends whose family is trying to talk them out of faith in Christ and prevent them from trusting in him. Well, it would be easy to fight the world in the world's way. It would be easy to fight fire with fire. It would be easy to fight hostility with hostility. But Peter writes here, of a much better way. We read about it here in verses 13 through 14, where he says not to fear the wicked. And then in verses 15 through 17, instead of fearing the wicked, to honor Christ as Lord, both inwardly and outwardly. So first, we see how we do not fear the wicked, for God gives you every reason for confidence in him. You have no cause for fear. Because God looks after you so that your opponents can't possibly harm you. 
Now, Peter poses this rhetorical question in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And this is a rhetorical question that has two answers. The one that's lying under the surface and sort of the minor response is, if you're zealous for what is good, you may not have as much to fear from those around you as you might think. We'll develop that point first. And then second, and the more powerful answer that Peter gives in verse 14, is that even if there are those who would harm you, and if those people who are trying to harm you, they are nothing compared to God, who will bless you. Now, what we find is even in this life, even in this world, the people around us do respect and appreciate something of what is good. This is part of the reason I read the few verses leading up to this passage, because in verse 8, Peter cites these virtues, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are virtues, maybe with the exception of humility, but these are virtues that were in fact treasured and extolled by by Greco-Roman philosophers in Peter's day. And so if Peter's audience lives out these, uh, these virtues, they're going to be recognized as good, even by the society around them that is hostile to Christianity. Now, to be fair, this is not the situation that the church enjoys at all times and in all places. There are places and times where hostility to the truth breaks out much, much more seriously than even Peter's people were experiencing. And in fact, uh, it's almost certain that Peter is writing this maybe a few years before uh, a true murderous persecution arose against the church in the wake of the fire in Rome in the mid-60s. But nevertheless, there are often times in the life of the church when we're at relative peace and we face some opposition, and yet there are things that we can do to show that the world, or to to build bridges with the world, places where they do share things that we know are virtuous. And even to this day, we could add a little bit to this list. We share with the world care for the poor as a virtue, plain kindness, and even things like care for the body, providing food for those who are in need, and uh, providing medical care for those who are in need, and so on. And so if you're really zealous for these good things, if you are peaceable, if you're generous, it's not hard to realize that out in the public world, outside the church, maybe, maybe the knives won't be out for you as hard as you think. Indeed, it says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. My dad's best friend is a guy named Bob. And through all of my life, he's had no time at all for Christianity. But he he told me once there was somebody he really respected. He really respected Billy Graham. The reason why is because Bob saw that Billy Graham led a life of virtue kindness, that he respected those who disagreed with him, and so on. So we can see that even where there is some some opposition, nevertheless, living according to good things, zealous for good things, we'll find that maybe there isn't as much opposition as we might fear. But then there's the more powerful truth, 
that we can build on top of that, which we read in, again here in verse uh, 14. That anybody who would harm you for the sake of the gospel is as nothing next to God's blessing that he will give you in the gospel. Now again, suffering is not necessarily an absolute constant in the Christian life. This is written even if you should suffer. So Peter is teaching his people to be prepared for suffering at the hands of those outside the church. And indeed, they were experiencing some suffering. We read in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, that they speak against you as evildoers. Or in verse four, chapter 4, verse 14, that you are insulted for the name of Christ. And so as one commentator said that Peter's audience lives in an environment charged with suspicion and hostility, which can erupt into violence and persecution at any time, even if it hasn't erupted into violence yet. Yet, Peter's audience needs to be prepared for that. And he'll leave, Peter will write in chapter 4 that when we refrain from the world's practices, it will offend the hardened critics of the gospel and cause them to lash out. For Peter writes that for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And so at times, suffering for the sake of the gospel has been and will be more or less severe. And yet, in the midst of that suffering, God will show you his favor. God will give you a reward for that, both in this life and in the life to come. In this life, as we read in the shorter catechism, that we have many blessings from God by virtue of faith in him. We have assurance of God's love, peace in our conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance. These these rewards are yours by faith in Christ. And yet, as you walk with God, you will feel his pleasure, and you will encounter these more and more. God does bless his children by drawing near to them, strengthening and encouraging his children in their afflictions, and even through suffering, making his people more like Christ. So you will find that there are rewards for suffering in this life. But even more than that, there is a reward in the life to come, in Revelation chapter 2, Peter, or, uh, Jesus tells Paul, uh, John to write to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So persevering in faith brings you to your share in the kingdom of God, the inheritance that Peter uh, has been unfolding for us ever since chapter 1, verse 4, where he promises that we await an inheritance that is kept in heaven, unfailed, unfading, undefiled. 
And yet it has to be remembered that this blessing, these blessings from God are not reserved for those who suffer for unrighteousness' sake. If you provoke your opponents and get your nose bloodied as a result, it's stolen valor to claim God's blessing for that. So the point is not the suffering. The point is is suffering for righteousness' sake. And we can see this in the life and death of Christ, how Christ suffered like no one else. He suffered unjustly like no one else. Even to come down from the heavenly throne room on earth was a humiliation for him. And yet by his poverty you have become rich. Through his suffering, he redeemed you. He paid for your sins with the price of his blood. And he received a kingdom from his Father. Indeed, when God raised him from the dead and raised him up to heaven, God has put all things under his feet. Christ rules over all. And now all things are under his feet as the head of the church, as the head of you, his beloved brothers and sisters, whom he leads. And so there's no need to fear the wicked. There's no need to be troubled by the suffering that you suffer in this life. Instead, you fear God alone. And so do not let yourself even be troubled by the opponents. Don't pay them any mind as best you can. As they say, don't let them live rent-free in your head. For their purpose for you, the evil purpose of those who oppose the gospel can never come to pass. Because God intends to bless his, his children. The things that people want to inflict on you will never come to pass. Not ultimately. But God's good will for you will certainly come to pass. Jesus teaches, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you will one day be resurrected, raised up to that kingdom of heaven that is prepared for you as your inheritance. But you will only come to it through suffering. Suffering that God has laid out for you. Suffering that God keeps under his firm control. And so do not fear the wicked. For more people will have goodwill than you might expect. And those who oppose the gospel cannot accomplish their evil purpose for you. But instead, God will bless you. So we see in the next few verses, in verses 15 through 17, what flows out of that fearlessness that we have in the gospel of Christ. For we read here in the beginning of verse 15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy which is maybe slightly better translated, give reverence or set Christ apart as Lord. How? How can we do this? Well, Peter here is is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. And so Peter actually intends to bring in the entire context of Isaiah chapter 8. It's meant to be a reminder of all that God foretold and did through the prophet Isaiah. 
For God had foretold in Isaiah chapter 8 that he was going to bring grace to Judah, but only through judgment as the armies of Assyria marched on her. And so the Judahites feared the conquering armies. They were tempted then to turn to foreign gods, to turn to foreign military powers, even to turn to fortune tellers to try to know what was going to happen to them. But in Isaiah 8, here's what God says will happen to those who turn away from God into these earthly powers this way. It says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. He says, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. But here's the exhortation that God gives to those who will remain faithful to him. He says to them, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. And so when you are surrounded by people who want to put the fear of man into your heart, people who have the knives out for you in your faith, fear God instead and turn to him. Don't turn to false teaching. Don't turn to comforting words that come from outside scripture. Don't turn to political leaders. Don't turn to charismatic teachers and speakers of philosophy. But turn to God's word and turn to him and especially turn to Christ as your sanctuary. Because where else are you going to turn? Christ is the only mediator between God and humanity. He's the only one who can save you from your sins. He's the only one who can bring about his promise to restore, to restore his children to the life everlasting, to the fellowship that we ought to have with God, and to eternal life. And so Christ reconciles God to you so that God is not hostile to you, but he is friendly to you. He loves you. He looks out for you and adopts you so that he will care for you. And these blessings come to us not by turning to anything outside of Christ, but by turning to Christ and embracing him by faith. Where else are you going to find that? Who else can say that? Every every other philosophy or religion or belief system that you may want will, will require its price from you. But Christ calls you to take the water of life without price. So where else will you turn? Where else can you turn? There's no place to turn but to Christ. And so in your hearts, inwardly, honor Christ as holy and turn to him. But the heart, as we know, is the seat of our will. And so honoring him in your heart must flow out to honoring him outwardly too. And so Peter says here to be prepared to make a defense. Make 
a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Well, when you love something, you can tell people why. You all have hobbies. I have hobbies. One of them, I like watching Formula One racing. And I can tell you why I like it. The strategy over choice of tires. The spectacle of cars going 200 miles an hour. The skill that it takes to do it and the engineering work that goes into these machines. It's amazing. Shouldn't you all the more, shouldn't I all the more for that matter, be ready and able to tell people about the hope that you have of inheriting the kingdom of God? Well, it's quite simple, and perhaps now you see why I wish that I'd picked Jesus Loves Me This I Know as one of tonight's hymns. What a great song that encapsulates the hope that, ha that, that we have in us. I have notes here on my hope, and I'd rather just stick with the song that we sang tonight. It's better than what I wrote, but I'll try. By your sins, you know that you deserve death. But Christ suffered the punishment you deserve, and when you embrace him by faith, he gives you his perfect righteousness as a gift, which God proved by raising him from the dead, so that now Jesus lives in the throne room of heaven and has poured out the Holy Spirit on us to empower us to persevere in this life and to seal us for eternal life in the kingdom of heaven to come. That's my words, at least, for the hope that is in you. You have your own words to, to say it as well. And you don't have to have expertise in apologetics to do that. Just stating the truths of Scripture is enough. Now, if you have time and energy and ability to learn something about apologetics, I encourage that. But just to be able to give a defense, to be able to explain the hope that you have in you, is enough for honoring Christ as Lord outwardly. But you must always be prepared. You're always on the clock for Christ. There are no half days in the kingdom of heaven. So again, our hobbies come out of us easily. It's easy to start talking about these things with strangers at the coffee shop or in, the, in line at the grocery store. But why not the gospel? so much more important. It has so much more power to save. And opportunities to speak about the gospel abound if you're able to pay attention for them. And so ask God to give you attentiveness for when there are these opportunities. I guarantee you that he will give them to you. But you are to do it with gentleness. Always to treat people with gentleness. There's no need to be overbearing insulting, unkind. Treat people so that when you bring the good news to them, it is truly good news. In Peter's time, the gospel's opponents would tear them down. We can imagine that some people were disowned by their families for faith in Christ. Some people lost their jobs for faith in Christ. Some people suffered, uh, suffered the evil words that people would say to them for their conversion to Christ. But what would it be like to try to bring the gospel to people if Christians treat their proselytes just the same as the world will treat them when they convert? 
What a ridiculous concept. No, we are here to bring the good news to people. And we are here to live out the good, the good news of Christ to the people around us. And so why not demonstrate to the people that they can relax around you? That you're not easily offended. That you're not hard to please. That love oozes out of you because God's love has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Look at the way that Christ treats those whom he calls. In John chapter 4, we read of how he encountered this Samaritan woman outside of the city. A woman who was brought low in every way. She had been used and discarded by five husbands, was being used and not even married by another sixth man. So ashamed that she was drawing water at the heat of the day. We can infer that she was doing that to avoid the evil eye from the other women of the city who would draw water in the morning or the evening when it was cool. And yet Jesus is kind. Yes, he's firm. He tells her the truth. But he is kind with her. And he shows her much gentleness and respect. Which brings us to this matter of respect, which as often in the ESV translation of 1 Peter, comes from the Greek word for fear. It, it brings the fear of God into the conversation. Now, the fear of God in this context does lead to showing respect to others because that's what God wants you to do. That's what it is to fear God. It is to obey him. And so the fear of God, as you give the defense for the hope in you, leads to showing respect to others. and a clear conscience. The fear of God leads to a clear conscience. Now this clear conscience must be informed by the transformation of your mind by the Holy Spirit. So if you think your conscience is leading you to be sharp-tongued, think again. Strong words are sometimes called for, but never insulting or demeaning words. Not in any situation. James uh, writes in chapter 3 of his letter that with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. With, out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And keeping a good conscience doesn't only reflect the words that we use when we bring the gospel to people. It also means that you walk the talk, that you live righteously. This word translated behavior refers not only to outward behavior, but it refers to a complete way of life. It refers to our complete walk with Christ, imitating him, Seek, treating the lost with kindness, being ready and eager to forgive. In short, to love as you have been loved. And what Peter says here is that when you walk in Christ, when you have this good conscience before God, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now the New Testament scholar Karen Jobes points out that shame in the Old Testament and Jewish writings 
doesn't only refer to that inward sense of shame or guilt, but it refers to a social status as well, to being publicly humiliated and disgraced. Your good conduct should leave your opponents defeated in the eyes of the people who are positively inclined toward you. And you should be able, this should be the case without you having to speak a word against your opponents. It comes out of your way of life in Christ so that people can naturally see that the way of Christ is better and that they see it in you. And so you should engage the world with the confidence that this is a natural result, that you don't have to uh, toot your own horn when it comes to making sure that people see that the way of Christ is better. So if people speak evil of you because of your faith in the gospel, everybody else around should know that these accusations are false. And yet you must be prepared to suffer for honoring Christ. Christ himself suffered, and he said that no no disciple is greater than his teacher. And Christ suffered for doing righteously. So we suffer as we live in imitation of him. But remembering always that suffering is within God's word, sorry, within God's will, and under his control. So what's the alternative? Express your faith the world's way. Fight fire with fire. But then you'll suffer for the evil that you do. What you'll be giving evidence to is not faith at all. And so be on your guard. Suffering in itself is not the sign that you're acting righteously. The key is doing right. The key is having this good way of life in Christ. As I look through the rest of the scriptures, I see lots of characters in the Bible, lots of people who lived according to what Peter says here in these few verses. And none stands out to me more than Daniel. For Nebuchadnezzar, he captured Jerusalem. He stole the temple's holy vessels. He brought the young aristocrats of the city into his service. And he did his best to convert them to the Babylonian religion. He gave them Babylonian names. He made sure that they were taught in the ways of fortune-telling and the customs of their people and their gods. But we see throughout the book of Daniel that Daniel lived faithfully to the true God. At the beginning of his service there, he refused the king's food to show that God is the one who feeds him, not the king. We see in chapter 10 how Daniel still keeps time by the sacrifices that he would dearly love to be offering in Jerusalem. And we read in Daniel chapter 6 that even on pain of death, he continues praying to the Lord three times a day. Well, in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar saw a tree that grew so great that its top was in heaven and that it was visible to the whole earth. This tree provides food to everybody, and the animals live in it and around it. But then a holy one cuts down the tree, and the vision shifts, and it's revealed that this tree represents a man. 
a man who will lose his mind for a time until he learns to honor God as the king of kings. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar brings this, brings this dream to Daniel, Daniel perceives that the dream refers to Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so Daniel's response was not to say, I told you so, Nebi. He doesn't gloat over him. He's not Muhammad Ali over the body of Sonny Lister. He's dismayed and alarmed. He's come to love this king. Even the king that sent him into exile sent him hundreds of miles away from his home. And Daniel even says to Nebuchadnezzar, may the dream be for those who hate you. Implicitly invoking God to change the fate of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel gives counsel to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel doesn't mince words with Nebuchadnezzar. He is firm with him. And yet he does it with gentleness and respect out of concern, out of genuine love for this king who he has been serving. For Daniel loved God. And that love led him to love this king. We see other examples throughout Daniel's life, how his own good conduct puts his enemies to shame, gives him favor with kings. And in this episode, it all happened to Nebuchadnezzar just as Daniel said. You probably know the story that Nebuchadnezzar did indeed lose his mind for a while. And yet, then Nebuchadnezzar comes to realize that God is the true king of kings. And so at the end of the episode, Nebuchadnezzar writes that he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Daniel did all this with, without fear because he had the fear of God in him. Christ has given you a hope, a hope of a future inheritance in the kingdom of heaven that means that you have nothing to fear from your opponents. And so you can show your fear of God by clinging to him for strength to overcome. Glorify Christ as the Lord, and he will give you strength and wisdom to endure. He will prepare you to make the defense, to do it with gentleness and respect. He will redeem all your suffering. and He will bring you to that heavenly inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we have such a hope in us. And we pray that you would give us a fear of you and eradicate fear of those who may oppose the gospel. Father, please prepare us in every way to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us. Put it in our hearts to love them by showing them gentleness and a fear of you that leads to showing respect to them. Father, strengthen us to walk in a good conscience, to walk as Christ did, 
Father, we pray that through both conduct and through words, that people would see and hear, and that they would come to love Christ for themselves and be saved. In his name we pray. Amen.